Welcome to RPGnomics, where we investigate the business forces behind the games we love. My guest today is Ben Riggs, noted games journalist and media figure, as well as author of the upcoming book, Slaying the Dragon. Ben, how you doing? I am recovering from COVID, and my son currently has COVID, and he's 16 months old, which means he can't go to daycare for another 10 days. Oh, dear. So it's 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 like World War One right now. Got it. And we were talking about age briefly <laughs> beforehand, so it appears that you've technic- uh, briefly acquired a two-point flaw uh, in the form of the ward <laughs> flaw. So we got that. Um, ben, you are an author, not necessarily of RPGs, but about RPGs, which is a fascinating subset. What is your experience writing, not for, but about role-playing games? I fell into it at some point when I just realized that I wasn't very good at making role-playing games or role-playing game adventures. I dipped some toes into that field and I'm like, I don't know that I'm very good at it. But I then swung that into a gig writing for Geek and Sundry. I happened to be at Geek and Sundry kind of while it was part of the zeitgeist. Like I, I, I was kind of lucky that my time there overlapped with the time where it was really pretty hot. And I wrote a couple hundred articles for them. And one of them was about the history of D&D. And I thought I knew everything there was to know about the dis- history of D&D, but I, I discovered I, in fact, knew nothing about the history of D&D in the course of researching the article. And four years later, that turned into a book, which is coming out on July 19th, and you can pre-order now. And if you do, you get an amazing Jeff Easley book plate. And I found out delightfully that if you pre-order the Audible book, you can still also get that book plate, which I, l- I will lovingly affix to my phone only while reading this book. <laughs> and I'm pretty, I'm pretty jazzed about that. So why go through the process of writing a book about the world's favorite? What's the technical term I have to use? Kind of like the big game instead of the Super Bowl? The world's oldest role-playing game. Mm-hmm. Um, when I, I picked up the second edition player's handbook, last night and was looking through the beginning and somewhere in the beginning there they referred to Dungeons and Dragons as the best-selling role-playing game of all time and I'm sure that's still true yeah <laughs> uh, what led you to dive into the game's history really it was that the the task was assigned to me by Geek and Sundry and as I got going on it I kept learning stuff I didn't know at some point it became a self-propelling engine because I would learn stuff I didn't know I would then put it out on the podcast and do seminars at conventions about what I had learned. And I'd then go learn more and I would write more articles and do more podcasts and do more seminars. And it, it kind of became this this just wheel of that kept me churning was like, oh, I have to revise my convention presentation because I learned these new things. I learned that, you know, in uh, 1997, D&D or 1996, rather, D&D was put up as collateral on a loan. So if TSR had gone under in 1997, Dungeons and Dragons could have been like chopped up at the auction block with one party getting the Dungeon Master's Guide, one party getting the player's handbook, who owns D&D? Meh. And it was finding out stuff like that that really kept me writing for four years. Like I, I when I started, I was like, "This will be a ten thousand word thing. I'll put it on Kickstarter. If I raise a few bucks, that's fine." And then it kept going and going and going and going until, in raw form, I think I had like one hundred and thirty-five thousand words, which was then pared down, refined, and just concentrated into about a hundred thousand words, which is the book. 
Now, the book is subtitled A Secret History of Dungeons and Dragons, and one of the blurbs is about the secret history of TSR. Why should we as game fans, or even those interested in the business of games, be curious about the rise and possible fall, to be determined, of TSR? I would say it's because they created the first role-playing game, and the core issues that TSR encountered with making role-playing games, I think still bedevil role-playing game companies to this day. For example, the role-playing game business model of you, I, we will produce a book. The book will have everything you need in it to play. Theoretically, like five people could play using this one book for years and you don't really need to buy anything else. That is a thing that role-playing game companies have wrestled with since time immemorial. Maybe, maybe Paizo has cracked it with their subscription model. But even then, another part of the TSR model was, okay, so we're going to have new editions and the new editions will require you to buy all the books again. And then, hey, we're going to have settings and we'll update them for the new editions. And you have to buy all of them again. And we just keep working through the settings until we get to the new edition. And that's our business model. The thing is, people struggle with new editions a lot of the time. Almost never are you going to get 100% of the people making a leap to the new edition. And again, hopefully the new edition brings in tons of new people. Like the most successful editions of D&D are probably first, third, and fifth. And the hallmark of those three editions is they they tended to bring in new people. And again, I love second. Second is always my, when I think of D&D, second edition is what I think of. So it was my first one. Again, if you look at the sales numbers, it was not as successful as first. And fourth edition, I don't have sales numbers for, but if you talk to fourth edition people, they say it's sold well, just not so incredibly well that it made an impression on Hasbro is what they'll kind of say behind the scenes. So new editions are in fact a dangerous proposition for role-playing games. So if you're a role-playing game company and you make a game and it's been purchased and you you sell, even if it's a big hit for you, you know, you can't sell the game twice. How do you get these people to buy stuff again? You know, what just what do you do after you've created this one product? And I think that's a thing that people still struggle with. And again, one of the ways TSR tried to deal with that, TSR, for example, started publishing novels, which is a solution that a number of role-playing game companies have attempted. And for TSR, it was pretty pretty successful. I want to say there was a point at which they were the largest publisher of fantasy fiction in North America in the early 90s. Um, Again, I I wrote a book on this. I'd have to go check my book to see if that's in there, but I think it is. They tried to become a comic book company at one point, which was its own special sort of disaster. As far as I know, for example, I am the first person to really write deeply on TSR's attempt to break into comic books by starting a comic book company in Los Angeles called TSR West. The process of writing it was amazing because everybody I interviewed was a real character. They were all tons of fun. Ordinarily, when you interview people about a failure, they tend to be reticent and kind of ashamed. But for whatever reason, everyone involved at TSR West was like, okay, here's what we did. And these were our mistakes. And maybe it's because it was a comic book company in the 90s. And it's so long ago and, and can seem so inconsequential. Oh, yeah, we spent two years trying to make a comic book company failed so that no one really cares. Also, again, some of the characters like Flint Dilly, who is probably more famous for writing on G.I. Joe Transformers and droids in the 1980s. Oh, and the Mr. T 
cartoon where Mr. T was training gymnastics kids and they solved mysteries on the side. He was essentially in charge of this endeavor. And he hired like comic book writers like Elliot S. Magan. Elliot S. Magan married the same woman two or three times. They kept getting divorced and getting remarried. He got a B minus on a paper in college. So he turned it into a Green Lantern script, sent it to DC and they published it. And again, he he was just a fascinating interview. So there were just so many great characters, you know, willing to tell the truth about what happened, tell the truth about their mistakes. And so that, that chapter was just a ton of fun to write. But, you know, one of the solutions that role-playing game companies find to, we want to make role-playing games. But there's a real problem to that business model is let's make something else. <laughs> like in many ways, that's how Wizards of the Coast has solved the problem is make Magic the Gathering. That is how we will survive. <laughs> so it kind of brings up a question, though. This is functionally the same thing that happens in the board game world. Why does the RPG world struggle with it in a way that the board game world seemingly doesn't? Cheap answer. Their market is 20 times larger. They can certainly make it up in volume. Hey, there we go. But again, one of the one of the terrible things about me is that I have very deep knowledge on on TSR. But once you get me out of that, out, I'm kind of like, no, 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 and it, that makes sense. Every time ICV2 puts out the, their numbers, like I want to say, role playing games are 25 percent the size of the board game market. Mm-hmm. And that is impressive because even within the RPG market, a single buyer, it is not unreasonable for them to purchase hundreds of dollars in product if they're the, the storyteller or something like that or the person in charge of the game. And for those following along at home, the Mr. T TV series did get three seasons and 30 episodes. So God bless you, Flint Dilly. It, it was no flash in the pan. Um, so you've mentioned they tried to branch out into transmedia. They tried to figure out how to leverage these games worlds. Of those ventures, did any of them hit? I would say novels hit. The at one point, again, like they were regularly hitting bestseller paperback lists. Jim Louder, one of the editors at TSR at the time, and also an author, would tell me about how there were weeks that his books were outselling Stephen King's Walden Books uh, bestseller lists. They were selling millions of copies of novels, millions of copies. And those novels brought in, they were more profitable than the role-playing game material because even though the role-playing game material had a higher price point, there was a lot more labor that went into, say, uh, Dragonlance Adventures, a hardback book with full-color art on the cover and using a team of people, cartographers, illustrators, editors, rules designers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, compared to a novel where you needed a probably a freelance writer. You needed one editor and a cover, and that was pretty much it. For most of the 90s, book sales and role-playing game sales were about at parity in bringing in gross profits to the company. But I want to say if you looked at net profits that the novels were doing better. Again, that's a I wish I had my book here and could look it up Mm -hmm. thing. But that's what I recall. But in gross sales, at least novels and role playing games were about even at TSR. Um, The problem was that TSR did not have great discipline in spending. So there was a great need for money. And obviously, one of the ways that you make money is by generating more product. But like, man, I want to say in the late 1980s, TSR was putting out, you know, something like 12 novels a year by the late mid late 1990s. Again, I, I need to write write down numbers. The numbers are in my book and I'm, I'm fudging the numbers now, but the 
underlying thing I know to be true. They're producing way, way, way more content, more novels by 95, 96, but they were producing them to bring in about the same gross sales because again people just can't buy like you can you could buy 12 tsr novels a year if you were a dedicated fan you could buy those and read those it'd be intense but you could do it but once you got into that volume of product you just you can't keep up by the mid 90s you felt like tsr was just flinging product out the door trying to keep the lights on but sales kept going down as they kept flinging more product out the door what happened? What was that misstep that kind of brought it down? Was it a case where they were over-investing in product development? Had they made some bad bets with certain products? Were they just exhausting their market? Had the market shifted? I'm a White Wolf fan kind of by default, and the decline of TSR and the rise of White Wolf are a little bit, are, are somewhat contemporary-ish within, within a half decade. What were the choices they made that kind of spelled their doom? They wisely, again, recognized that producing just Dungeons and Dragons didn't seem to be a great business model. But every time they tried to do something else, except for novels, didn't go great. For example, TSR West, again, the attempt to start a comic book company, which sounds like a great idea. They financed it with a loan. They were not super considerate about their costs in starting the company. For example, initially they were supposed to have offices in, you know, some flea bag area of Los Angeles where the rents were low. But once Flint Dilly got involved, uh, the uh, Flint Dilly's sister ran TSR. Suddenly the offices get switched to either Brentwood or Westwood. I'm not, are you, you're not in LA, are you? Nope. Philadelphia. Okay. Either Brentwood or Westwood in Los Angeles. It's in the book. I just can't remember, which is more expensive than the flea bag area they were going to start in. And again, after two years, they took a bath on the whole thing. Like by the end of it, they were having more copies of their comic books being returned than sold. So every dime they spent all the money, all of it produced no profit in the end and was just red ink on their balance sheets. Another example is they decided to make an AD&D second edition CD-ROM core rule set, which again, from sitting here in 2022, you're like, that makes a ton of sense. Like, I can totally understand doing that. They essentially financed a startup in Madison, Wisconsin, I believe called Evermore Entertainment. They bought computers for those guys. They were buying desks and chairs, apparently. And the final product, again, like got good reviews. It seemed good. But through a com very complicated set of events, which I probably shouldn't get into because I think it would take 10 minutes for me to explain, they allowed Babbage's, which was going out of business at the time. It was, if you're under 40, Babbage's was kind of the best buy in malls in the 80s and 90s. Babbage's was going out of business. They allowed Babbage's to get tens of thousands of copies of their rule set and then sell them at a discount because they were going out of business, which means anybody who wanted to pick up the AD&D CD-ROM set could go to Babbage's and get it for like 25% of face value, 50% of face value. So anybody who wanted it wasn't going to their game store and paying full price, which means all these game stores were like, yeah, I bought copies of your stupid uh, AD&D core rule set and no one bought it. I'm not going to buy any follow-up products. So they, they financed this computer startup to make a product that was visionary and nothing came of it. They created a board game with a video component to try and bring new people into the hobby. Again, from, from the point of 2022, where you have Critical Role and all these streamers bringing people into the role-playing game hobby, you think to yourself, again, seems visionary, makes sense. 
But the designer of the game and the creator of the video, again, Flint Dilly, the brother of CEO Lorraine Williams, they did not adequately communicate on the creation of the video. So like the video is supposed to explain kind of how to play this, you know, simplified version of Dungeons and Dragons called uh, Dragon Strike. They never talk about rules until about 20 minutes into the video. Hmm. And then when they do, it's not super illuminating it's kind of confusing so really it's more like a pilot for a television show and not not a very good one but they spent all this money on the product it didn't do what they wanted it to do and i had people tell me that they believe that that product was sold at a loss for every copy sold because they believed that the cost of creating the video was not included in the base price of the game. Because if they had included the cost of the video in the base price of the game, the game would have been so expensive that you couldn't get beginner players to buy it. So the company was like, okay, we're going to kind of take a bath on this to bring new people in. But again, it didn't work because the product just didn't do what it was supposed to do. So those are the things that TSR was spending money on that it shouldn't have and at the same time they were borrowing money from random house to to cover costs it just really sounds like a combination of just very poor business decisions some of them were what i will refer to as unforced errors they didn't have to make the goof but they did and then eventually in what is it 97 they are sold to wizards of the coast or purchased by wizards of the coast Um, was there a point where this could have been saved is there a is there an alternate universe in everything everywhere all at once style where a critical person was not hired or a critical choice was differently made and everything goes fine or is it just one of those things that if we took tsr at their height ran them forward they did not have the business acumen and toolbox to run a successful company for the medium term there were so many bad decisions it's hard to point to one okay like you could say that it was when lorraine williams ousted gary gygax from control of the company but at the same time people tell me that she saved it in 85 86 that like they were all on pay deferments like you know gary couldn't get people paid god love him but he couldn't get people paid and lorraine williams takes over and within 10 months everyone has gotten all the money that they were owed back plus interest one of the things where you know lorraine williams was ceo when the company collapsed and you know the collapse of the company has to be laid at her feet because she was the owner and ceo and president but at the same time on the other side of the balance sheet she saved the company in the mid 80s so again you could say to yourself well maybe if lorraine williams didn't get control of the company but if she didn't get control of the company and gary had it maybe it collapses in 87 Mm -hmm. (laughs) i had uh editor john ratliff told me He joined the company in about 1989 that for all the people who worked under Gary and for all the respect they had for Gary, that no one said that they preferred working under Gary to working under Lorraine Williams. As nice as it was to have a gamer in charge of things, again, he just didn't have that business sense. And Lorraine Williams clearly had at least some business sense. She kept the lights on for about 12 years. As one person put it, she she didn't know how to grow the company and move it forward. So I guess if if we were going to find a, a place, maybe that's it. You know, maybe if Lorraine Williams really knew how to do a little bit more long term planning, things would have gone differently. Do you think there were any external factors? As in, do you think there were changes in distribution or in sales? It seems like they made a few bets on upcoming media that didn't quite pay off. But were there any other changes that were happening in the business world or the distribution channels that may have contributed to this? There was an RPG crash 
In the 90s, Peter Adkisson, co-founder and CEO of Wizards of the Coast, publishes, published Magic the Gathering and went on to buy TSR. Wizards of the Coast divested of their role-playing game division due to the crash in in sales in the 90s. And P some people will say the crash was caused by Magic the Gathering. And Peter Adkisson is always like, hey, 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 no, no, this was before Magic. I, I had to cut my RPG line. It wasn't like Magic came in here and, and caused that sales crash. When... Peter Adkisson talked about this at a convention. TSR put out a rather sneering press release about how their role-playing game sales were up uh, and they were doing so, so good. And it's poor Wizards of the Coast getting rid of their role-playing game division. Too bad they can't make a go of it in the role-playing game industry. And then about 15 months later, Peter Adkisson owned TSR. <laughs> like the timing on that is incredible. The reason for that sales crash, I couldn't tell you. There were two great sales crashes in TSR's life. The first was in the early 1980s. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't tell you what caused that. John Peterson, think, who, who really, for the Gary Gygax era at TSR, is probably the preeminent historian. He says that he thinks it was market saturation. That again, there's just so many 12 to 16 year olds that you can sell a AD&D core book to or a Beckme basic set to by 82, 83, they have reached all of those people. And now TSR needs to find another way to make money in the early, to early nineties, that crash. Again, I'm, I just, I'm not sure. Cause again, it, it crossed the board. Like I said, white wolf, I know had the same thing happen and wizards of the coast had the same thing happen to them, but why it happened. I couldn't tell you. One of the things I've been interested in though, is I want to say the the collapse of TSR and the failure of Marvel are about 14 months apart, I want to say. And I've been very interested in that. And I would love, like, again, it, it, in the 90s, it just seemed like geek stuff was dying. Like the 60s and 70s and early 80s had been this, like, you know, heyday. And by the 90s, it was just like going the way of the dodo and how, how wrong we all were. But no, I don't have a good answer for why that happened. So you've mentioned a bunch of names. When we're trying to follow the story, are there any other key names that we should know to kind of track this TSR saga? I mean, I think the three most important names are Gary Gygax, Lorraine Williams, and Peter Adkisson, because Gary was the co-creator of D&D &D and co-founder of TSR. Lorraine bought it from him and, like I said, saved it. She oversaw the game's Silver Age. And then when the company was about to go belly up again, Peter Atticuson stepped in with Wizards of the Coast and purchased it. And suddenly uh, Dungeons and Dragons was back in the hands of a gamer geek because Lorraine Williams was not a geek. Peter Atticuson was geeky enough that, you know, he wanted to be in charge of third edition. And he was in charge of third edition for a while. He ended up being so busy selling to Hasbro that he had to put Jonathan Tweet in charge, which is its own rather delicious story having to do with third edition. But I suppose that's outside our direct purview in this conversation. I would never stop someone from telling a story about Jonathan Tweet. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but th those would be the three big names are Gygax, Williams, and Adkisson. What was the research process for this like? It was mostly me chasing people down and then having people send me things anonymously or secretly. Oh, I suppose anonymously is a better word. It must be something about 20, 25 years after the events that people still cared so deeply about that, you know, I'd, I'd interview people and they would tell me things I never heard before. They'd send me to other people who would tell me things I hadn't heard before. Pretty soon people are like sending me documents they've kept in their basement since 1995. The best thing was when Peter Atkinson was purchasing TSR, he had a prep binder 
that, you know, he had directions from O'Hare Airport to Lake Geneva, letters uh, from people asking for jobs, uh, like Date Varnison wrote him twice being like, give me a job, put me in charge of TSR again, please, Peter. And sales figures, what what the plans were for Dragonlance in 1998, if things had gone well. And at some point, he left Lake Geneva and forgot his binder there. And a TSR employee picked it up and kept it in their basement until they sent it to me last year, you know, like, which I I didn't know that was there. Again, I I feel in some ways that like, I'm the luckiest guy in the world with this story, because I got an awful lot through through good relationships with people and people just being generous, and I guess having faith in my ability to tell the story, and therefore just being willing, willing to like, here's stuff here, you know, I printed out all the core sales of AD&D core books from 1979 to 1999. And this person must have printed it out in 1999 and just sends them to me. And it's like, okay, so, you know, let's take a look here. Well, the basic rule set in 1979 sold, and this is very small, like over 300,000 copies, I'm going to say. I regret not having a magnifying glass to zoom in on this with. I cannot claim I'm just the most amazing researcher and I found these things no one found before. I got really lucky with people wanting to tell me these things and, and being willing to send them to me. And again, that's why I, I, I call it a secret history of Dungeons and Dragons. Cause like some of this stuff you've never seen before. Like I didn't realize that red steel, which was one of the settings that came out in the mid nineties was like the low point of sales for the entire company of TSR that a company that was selling, I want to say 500,000 copies of the gray Hawk, World of Greyhawk box set in the early 80s sold only 15,000 copies of Red Steel, which came with a CD in the mid 90s. You know, oh, how the mighty have fallen. Or uh, again, to put in perspective how well the novels were doing, the first Dark Sun novel outsold every other Dark Sun product that came out that year combined. If you took all the role-playing game stuff and put it in one pile and every copy of just the first novel in the other pile, the novel sold more, which, you know, when I talk about how like novels were, you know, 50% of the gross of the company, that really puts things in perspective. And, and yet I talked to someone else and another guy is like, oh, you want to hear about Dark Sun? Let me tell you, those first few adventures we put out for Dark Sun that had these flip books with beautiful art and stories for players and things that you could show players. Yeah, we were losing a buck on every single one of those we sold, but we didn't notice till about three or four adventures in. So, you know, we, we lost a couple hundred thousand dollars on all those adventures we made uh, because of we weren't watching our bottom line. And, and again, that's kind of why I feel like this is a secret history, because I feel like I'm the first person to talk to. I shouldn't say I feel I know I'm the first person to talk to a lot of these people about these topics. And I, I've talked to so many people who were so generous with their time and willingness to share information with me that I feel like it's the first holistic look at TSR in this era. And again, hopefully it is the kind of thing where like other role playing game companies can look at this and be like, OK, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. Over time, we have lost both Gary and Dave. A number of other people who are part of the early history are gone. Are there any facts or stories or, I guess, conflicts that have not been and maybe never get resolved? Any questions on the history of TSR that is just kind of beyond the grave at this point? I don't think Gary Gygax was a very good narrator of his own time. Mm -hmm. Again, I I think Gary Gygax lied to us a lot about the history of TSR, which makes total sense, right? Like poor Gary Gygax. You know, he is the co-creator of Dungeons and Dragons, which turns out to be 
a, a radical new medium. Again, I was looking at the second edition player's handbook yesterday. The player's edition second handbook spends about a half page trying to explain what a role-playing game is to people using an analogy based on shoots and ladders because Zeb, I assume it was Zeb Cook writing it, not uh, Steve Winter, but because Zeb Cook, the designer of second edition, who'd been playing D&D forever and was apparently, you know, so well-versed in it, they chose him to make second edition. He couldn't really explain what D&D was to people using just words. He struggled with it. He said, if you want to learn how to play D&D, the really thing you should really do is go find a group. That would be my number one thing. Go do that. It's way easier to see than explain. So here Gary Gygax comes, and he, he creates something so novel and so new and so radical that, again, people still kind of struggle to explain what you do when you role play a game, when you play a role-playing game, right? That then propels him to actual wealth. The, the, the Gygax family was so poor that, you know, Ernie Gygax was like, had holes in his shoes. They were getting like government cheese. They were on, on welfare, apparently. They go from that to buying mansions in southern Wisconsin and living in the Hollywood Hills. When Gary Gygax divorces his wife, I'm told that there are prostitutes, there's drugs, there's cr all this craziness in Los Angeles, no less. For that guy, the loss in... 85, 86 of not just his company, but the game that he created. And yet he had like, you know, decades of life left. Of course, if you're that guy, you're going to just rewrite things so that you're the hero. You're going to rewrite things so you made no mistakes. You're going to rewrite things so that you look good. And that was the real problem was when a lot of people went back in the early aughts and started talking to Gary about his time at TSR. He's just not telling the truth. Again, <laughs> that one of the famous things is uh, TSR bought a needlepoint company, right, called Greenfield Needlewomen. And Gary Gygax when he talked about this in the early aughts, he's like, yeah, my partners, the Bloom brothers, they did it. They wanted to buy this needlepoint company because it was owned by a relative. And because the executive board was like me and the two Bloom brothers, they could outvote me on anything. So I had no control, blah, 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 blah. And yet in the Wall Street Journal in the early 1980s, Gary Gygax is in the Wall Street Journal defending the purchase of Greenfield Needlewomen, talking about how, hey, um, you know, the craft hobby field is a bigger field than role playing games. Furthermore, Inc. Magazine goes on at great length about the corporate structure of TSR, which is so unusual because it has like three people in charge of it and everything has to be decided on unanimously. Like at the, if one person disagrees, TSR doesn't do it. And again, Gygax and the Bloom Brothers are extensively talking about this in the early 1980s. 20 years later, Gygax is just like, no, I was outvoted on everything. <laughs> and uh, again, that I kind of resent him giving historians this unreliable narrator mm. problem. Like Gary, you know, if you're going to give interviews to the Wall Street Journal, you know, you can't come back 20 years later and just say different stuff. We'll look in the journal eventually. People will figure this out. You could have just said you made a mistake. Like, no, nobody cares, Gary. Like, nobody is going to be like, oh, that guy bought a needlepoint company. We should take down that statue. You know, everyone loves Gary Gygax because he created D&D. No one is sitting around thinking about, like, the mistakes he made and how I don't like Gary Gygax anymore. If anything, it kind of makes him more endearing. We've kind of talked over the big things. What lessons do you feel this does hold for the contemporary industry? Do you think there's anything they really did get right? And I guess, was it just Peter Atkinson's business acumen that allowed that ship to be righted? 
let me answer the first part first and then don't let me forget the second part. I think the lessons learned are seen most acutely in two organiz- in two things. One, no role-playing game company has rolled out settings the way TSR did. And I think that one of the pieces of common industry wisdom coming from the death of TSR is that TSR destroyed its own fan base by creating all of those settings. And not only that, but like going so whole hog on the products to introduce those settings. And again, those of us who are alive then buying those things, we're like, oh, they were amazing. Posters, maps, dice. You know, it was like Christmas day when you opened one of those things. And yet like by 1990, you have just in the kind of strict fantasy uh, milieu, you have Greyhawk, you have Forgotten Realms, you have Dragonlance, uh, and there was the known world for Dungeons and Dragons. You had four fantasy settings just by 1990. And then you introduced to that Ravenloft, Al-Kadim, Dark Sun, Planescape. Like every time TSR did that, they took their pre-existing fan base and split it up and split it up and split it up and split it up. It's one of the reasons why by the mid 90s, gross sales tended to stay flat at TSR until I forget it was 96 or 97, but 96, I want to say 96, you had a 15% decrease in gross sales, which is what precipitated the crisis. But until 96, like sales were pretty flat, kind of like between 35 and $38 million per year. And the reason that gross sales stayed flat is because they probably weren't growing their Uh, customer base very much, but they had to keep producing more and more products to generate the same gross sales. Because now instead of everyone going and buying Forgotten Realms or Dragonlance, you had to make uh, a Dragonlance product, a Ravenloft product, a Forgotten Realms product, and down the line. So it's one of the reasons that like Wizards of the Coast has been pretty hesitant to put out setting material. Like again, compared to TSR, like there were years TSR put out more settings material than Wizards of the Coast has in the entire run of fifth edition. Yeah, 1994, we got Birthright, Council of Verns, Planescape, uh, and Red Steel in a year. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy, right? The other thing I think that you really see the lessons of TSR being taken seriously in the role-playing game industry today are at Paizo. Lisa Stevens was put in charge of figuring out why TSR failed for Wizards. And that the, the two things that she kept coming back to in her analysis were, A, the, those splitting of the settings killed their customer base. B, again, like they, they would produce product and not know that it didn't make money for like a year. It was almost like when they were setting the price on things, they were just throwing darts at a board at, at some point in the Williams era. Um, again, you'll talk to other people about earlier times at TSR and they'll say, no, 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 we had a whole system. And that may be true for the Gygax era, but for the Williams era, at least by the 90s, they were having a hard time making sure that they were not producing unprofitable product. One of the things Stevens discovered, for example, was that Planescape made no money, not like the box set, the entire game line never made TSR money. And again, Planescape is this amazing setting with fantastic art and delicious writing. And and the idea that like the company was so being run in such an irresponsible fashion that that 
didn't make money is crazy. So if you want to look and see at a sort of TSR model done profitably and well, I feel like that is Paizo. For example, like they only have one world. They have Galarian. Now you'll get a bunch of different countries in Galarian. Mm -hmm. So you can go to one place for your gothic horror, another place for this, another place for your steampunk. And that's fine. But like they're not separate planes. They are one world. Two, usually those setting products, they're not putting out box sets for every country. It tended to be like the last time I looked, at least, you know, paperback books that might be full color. They might not be running, at least when I was buying them, less than 20 bucks. But I haven't bought a Pathfinder setting thing in a long time. So, you know, I, I, again, like you can see how the, the TSR mistake of all these different worlds. Paizo tried to do what they wanted to do, which is have a, a lot of varied settings, but they put it in one place to kind of fix that problem. So when I think about lessons learned in the role-playing game industry, that's what I see. And you asked, how was D&D fixed essentially, right? Mm -hmm. This is not in the book. I ended with the purchase of TSR by Wizards of the Coast, but I did not then go forward. Although in my research and writing, I've, my research and writing, I've probably gone through to 2000 to the release of third edition again when once wizards of the coast bought tsr you had nerds with business degrees who were also huge role-playing game fanatics looking at the company before then you might have had business people and you might have had role-playing game geeks but they usually were not inhabiting the same body mm -hmm. which complicated matters greatly and ryan dancy was the brand manager of dnd once it was passed over to Wizards of the Coast. And I would say that he is largely responsible for, I shouldn't say he was, that's not no fair, there was, there was a team, but he was the head of the team that saved Dungeons and Dragons. And they, they discovered the following things. First of all, that when they bought TSR, TSR was $30 million in debt. Peter Adkisson had to convince the board of Wizards of the Coast to purchase TSR, even though it was $30 million in debt. And they were going to get that debt with the purchase. Mm -hmm. And the board was like, why don't we just let it go bankrupt first? And Atkinson was like, no, I don't want to lose that inertia. I don't want people to walk away. I don't want to have to go searching for staff. Let's buy it now. We have enough money. Let's just do it. So every, everything's in the same place. Within the halls of Wizards of the Coast, there were people who thought of D&D &D and TSR as a dirty diaper that they bought. When Dancy looked at D&D sales, what he noticed was that 80% of the company's gross sales came from the sales of their top 50 products. And of those top 50 products, 48 were core Dungeons and Dragons stuff, core books, adventures, things like that. So A, he said, so if you are making a decision in marketing, sales or design, you need to ask yourself, how is that going to do selling those top 50 products? This is what we are going to be supporting. Second, anything that is not core D&D is going bye-bye. We're not having other weird game systems. We're not having uh, Alternity. We're not having Dark Matter. And, you know, even like uh, we're, we're seriously paring down the settings, we're going to go back to I want to say that they they started with Greyhawk and they kept Forgotten Realms, too. But I want to say that those were the only two official settings at the beginning because they were like, no, it, it, it killed TSR to do that. We are not doing that. And then they wanted to produce a successful third edition of the game that would bring new people into uh, Dungeons and Dragons. I could talk for literally 
an hour just about the creation of third edition and we're kind of running low on time so i won't i will just say this the creation of third edition i was expecting everyone involved to be like we were all geniuses and awesome and because of our fundamental awesomeness that is why third edition was so incredibly successful but instead i got a lot of people saying kind of getting off the long knives on each other and and really giving me this dirty behind the scenes story of what happened with the creation of third edition. There was backbiting and conspiracy and Machiavellian plots and disrespect. And, oh, it's, it's fantastic. I gotta, get, I gotta get that story out somewhere. And lastly, there was the open gaming license. The open gaming license, if you are unaware, uh, allows you, uh, listener, to go and create Dungeons & Dragons products with certain limits right now. And you can sell them and you don't need to ask for Wizards of the Coast permission. You don't need to send them royalties. You just go and do it yourself and that the fact that they had a good game to sell that ryan dancy had a method for selling those games and the open gaming license kind of inspired the whole industry to suddenly get behind and support ye old dungeons and dragons uh those were the reasons that the third edition of DD was a success and that really justified the purchase of tsr by Wizards of the Coast. I would also tell you that a thing I have heard from people working at Wizards of the Coast on Dungeons and Dragons is that one of the problems with Dungeons and Dragons and working on it that persists to this day is that the culture of TSR still exists within Wizards of the Coast in the Dungeons and Dragons creation sphere, which I would love to get some of them on the record talking about, but of course none of them will because it would be bad for their income. When you say the TSR ethos or what have you is that a good thing or a bad thing bad thing in this case it is the a, a culture of uh, kind of one-upsmanship and seizing what you can and uh you know <laughs> this guy is going to write a book and i'm going to put my name on it you know like mm. david zeb cook wrote oriental adventures but it says gary gygax on the cover because that's what gary gygax wanted and dave cook should just be happy that he got to write this book. I do like that while you were doing this to double check some of the names, if you go to Lisa Stevens' page at Paizo, as a special ability, Lisa can create a company and each company created has the ability to once every five years create a gaming phenomenon as a free action. So I'm glad they have it <laughs> built into their business model, which is exceptional. Um, she's also listed as having an intelligence of 20 and is a level 20 CEO, level 10 DM. So humans, we can do class. So she's not going to get her CEO abilities at full until she outranks the other one. So we'll see how that happens. You know that she was one of the first people to work at White Wolf. Yes. Yeah. I mean, she was part of Lion Rampart with yeah. Mark Ryan <coughs> Hagen and Jonathan Tweet. Yeah. I, I feel Jonathan as if Tweet, you're gonna, yeah. if you're going to put a dot in your name, I feel like it needs to be like a plosive or something like a in uh song or another one of the uh, languages with plosive consonants like, like I, I hope that for some reason i have reason to go write a chapter on mark reinhagen lisa stevens and jonathan tweet and lion rampant because man i feel like that is a again a forgotten piece of history that explains so much about what's happening in the 20th century and they're all very interesting and strong personalities that are incredibly fun to interview. Have you read, uh, have you ever interviewed Mark, Mark Reinhagen? No, he never touched mage really. So it, it hasn't quite popped up. And the only time did he... you read, uh, uh, Patrick Rothfuss, a wise man's fear, the name of the wind, those books. Yes. I read the first one and was remarkably underwhelmed by it. That's all you need. Fellow game designer described Mark Reinhagen to me as he's quoth. 
He's the main character from that. That is Mark Reinhagen. And I'm like, that's fascinating. <laughs> yeah. uh, ben, this has been a fascinating conversation. And this is a book. Where can we go get the darn thing? I will send you a link that to go in your show notes, but you can get it literally anywhere. Uh, you can get it at Amazon. You can go to your friendly local bookstore uh, starting July 19th, I should add. It, it will be available July 19th. That said, if you go and pre-order it now, as I mentioned before, I will send you an autographed book plate from Jeff designed by Jeff Easley, who did both the who did the second edition player's handbook cover, second edition Dungeon Master's Guide cover. So if you are familiar with those iconic works, uh, you, Terry Robinson, can see the awesome book plate behind me now, where in one cover in one corner, there's an awesome dragon. In the other corner, there's a skeleton riding a dragon. There's a there's a wizard using telekinesis to steal gold for considering in all of this. I would add for those of you who can't see it is just around a gnarly scroll where I have my my autograph. But Jeff Easley really, really leaned into this for me and really produced some some pretty heavy metal 80s D&D stuff for this book plate. So you, the only way you get it is by pre-ordering. I will also so if you pre-order, there's then a little link that you have to follow to get the book plate. I will send both to Terry so you can pre-order the book and then click the other link to get the book plate because again, the only way you can get it is this way and it's a pretty awesome book plate and it'll be collectible. So there. <laughs> one of one individually numbered one of X like tweets. Isn't it amazing? Like as adults, we can find these authors and artists and literally pay the money to create more of the things we want. Ben, thank you so much for your time. Are there any other projects you would like to point our listeners to? I have a podcast called Plot Points. Right now we are reading the first edition Dungeon Master's Guide Aloud with a, a role-playing game academic. I think we're on our 23rd episode of just that and we're about 21 pages in. Mm -hmm. People seem to like it. I, I realize, like, I, you'll notice there's some hesitancy in my voice because I'm, I am kind of surprised that people like it, but they do. I've gotten more positive feedback for that than almost anything else I've done on a podcast. Check out Plot Points. Uh, if you go deeper back into our catalog, we did a lot of role-playing game reviews, which was also fun, but then I had a kid and suddenly, you know... <laughs> Reading a, a whole role-playing game, talk about it for an hour once a month became very difficult. But, you know, reading a lot of the Dungeon Master's Guide and talking about it, that's that's pretty easy. So that, as they say, is that. Ben, thank you so much for your time. Terry, my pleasure. I'll, I'll be on anytime. I hope this goes well. And um, thank you for having me on.